Wait, what are we doing? you if somebody walks in here they're just gonna say she's lost her fucking mind <laughs> today's bonus episode is brought to you by the ugly girl papers or hints for the toilet glass and tin bottles hide snug in a case waiting for a woman's daily ritual she reaches for a bottle of ammonia and washes it over her face, careful to replace the delicate class stopper. Next, she dips her fingertips into the creams and powders of her toilet table, gravitating toward a bright white paint filled with lead, which she delicately paints over her features. It's important to avoid smiling. The paint will set, and any emotion will make it unattractively crack. If you're wondering what today's bonus episode is all about, guess what, kids? I'm going to take you back in time to Victorian England, and we're going to actually look at a beauty column. And let me tell you something. I'm, I'm kind of confused as to what the fuck is happening in this beauty column, but we're going to take a look at it. Are you ready? Cosmetics of the era were plagued by caustic chemicals that could cause bodily addiction. And similar to today, the advice on how, if, and when to use these treatments came from the era's most popular beauty columns. Um, one such column, it was from Harper's Bazaar. <clears throat> ah, Harper's Bazaar. And it was called The Ugly Girl Papers, or Hints for the Toilet. It was written by a Mrs. S.D. Powers, a beauty expert of the time, and became so popular that it was republished in 1874 as an anthology. So the ugly girl papers has the tone of a wise aunt with endless advice on how to solve your beauty woes. <laughs> the article continues to say, um, in one chapter, Powers asks, is there such a being as a hopelessly homely woman? It is a rhetorical question, and readers of the time would have known the author's firm belief that one could go from average to charming with just a few dress and makeup adjustments. So according to Powers, women's beauty was an elaborate, skilled, and semi-secret performance. Everybody knows there are inventions and accepts them as such, like paste brilliance at a theater. So continuing with this, Victorian beauty ideals were unsurprisingly obsessed with pallor. And this is what we mentioned back in episodes five and six. Upper class white women chased um, even whiter skin, a symbol that their privilege never left them working in the sun. <clears throat> it was all about how to make your skin more translucent. So translucent to the point that you would kill yourself. Um, and Alexis Carl is a perfumer and lecturer who has researched Victorian cosmetics extensively. So there are two dominant makeup styles in the 1800s, the natural and painted. So the ideals of natural skin uh, care conjured images of the English rose, a wholesomely beautiful woman with good morals. So, <laughs> but Carl notes it was understood that there were a lot of artifice, uh, there was a lot of artifice, artifice going on. The painted beauty regime was seen as a bit risque. Oh my. These women were not hiding their artifice nor their desire to be beautiful. Mm. 
Similar to the no makeup makeup trend that exists today, because things haven't changed that much, the natural look was often achieved through unnatural preparations, many of them homemade and many of them deadly. I added that bit. Modern beauty practices belie the roots of current ideals. A chemical called taraxacum is suggested as a sort of 1800s um, chemical peel by Powers, who says, and I quote, the compress acts like a mild but imperceptible blister. What? And leaves a new skin, soft as an infant's. To keep the face fresh, she advises coating the face with opium overnight, followed by a brisk wash of ammonia in the morning. For the women with sparse eyebrows and eyelashes, mercury was often recommended as a nightly eye treatment, eradicating the need to use heavy makeup. And I quote this now, The look of the consumptive was very desirable. The woman with the watery eyes and pale skin, which of course was from the cadaver in the throes of death, says Carl. To get this near-death look, women would squeeze a few drops citrus juice or perfume into their eyes, or reach for some belladonna drops, which lasted longer, but also caused blindness blindness in the long run. <laughs> pale skin was encouraged with veils, gloves, and parasols, but could also be bought. <laughs> okay. Sears and Roebuck sold a popular product called Dr. Rose's Arsenic Complexion Wafers, which were just that little white chalk which were just that little white chalk wafers filled with arsenic for delicate nibbling. They were specifically advertised as perfectly harmless. Arsenic, a natural metalloid found in the Earth's crust, is an extremely toxic compound that can be tolerated for a time when eaten in small amounts and has occasionally been used in medicine. Long-term exposure, however, is extremely unpleasant. Nervous system and kidney damage, hair loss, conjunctivitis, and growths called arsenical keratosis plague the body along with, yes, vitiligo, which causes pigment loss in the skin. Arsenic, which became addictive as a person's tolerance built, was used in as many forms as possible. Lola Montez, a Victorian actress and traveling beauty writer, wrote in her book, The Arts of Beauty, about how women in Bohemia, now a part of che uh, the Czech Republic, regularly bathed in arsenic springs, which gave their skins a transparent whiteness. She also warned of the price. Once they habituate themselves to the practice, they are obliged to keep it up for the rest of their days, or death would speedily follow. Though beauty-related deaths were not always reported as arsenic poisoning, it wasn't that Victorian women didn't know arsenic was toxic or addictive. It was not uncommon for it to be used as a poison by murderesses of the era. And by the late 1800s, arsenic was known to be a dangerous ingredient, ingredient when used in dyes and wallpaper. <laughs> the use of arsenic in small quantities for skin lightening was considered uh, so effective that it continued for decades. The mentality associated with using dangerous substances was possibly rooted in the era's culture. Toxicity is one thing, but there was also a stream of mortality running through daily life, which is very true, and this is what Carl is saying. Victorian life was full of everyday dangers beyond poison products. Um, so Victorian life was full of everyday dangers beyond poison products. Diseases, fires, and electrical mishaps may have contributed to an obsession with death that made domestic dangers like skincare easier to overlook. While the skin remedies geared towards a natural look were dangerous, the painted ladies were hardly better off. I would, yeah, well. Women who used these products coated their faces and arms with white paints and animals in an effort to cover their natural skin tone and mimic an extremely pale complexion. These products were made from lead, which is corrosive. The more paint you wore, the more you needed to wear next time to cover your damaged skin. 
Vermilion, sometimes called red mercury, was a known poison and lip tint. Many advice columnists, including Montez, vehemently hated, en- uh, as she would call it, enameling. This is what she wrote, and I quote, If Satan has ever had any direct agency in inducing woman to spoil or deform her own beauty, it must have been in tempting her to use paints and enameling. This is what Montez declared. So, one painted woman, uh, Virginie, I love how like my my um, pronunciation of things when it's in French changes completely. Instead of just saying Virginie, I'm like Virginie. Uh, so, Virginie Gautreau, depict, depicted in a black dress in Sargent's famous portrait, Madame X, was admired and hate, hated for the sensualization of her corpse-like skin. Madame X would use indigo dye to paint veins on her arms over the enamel. She was highly skilled. These women were literally living pieces of art. While wearing the enamel, painted women had to keep a largely emotionless face against the risk that the enamel would crack. According to Carl, they made a concerted decision to paint rather than employ natural cosmetic methods, which were used out of sight and at home. Once you began to paint, everyone knew you did so, and in a social sense, you could never switch to a natural look. When read as a collection, beauty columns like the Ugly Girl Papers have a strangely contradictory feel. Well, in one instance, Powers claims that ammonia is the most healthful and efficient stimulus for the hair. And in another, insists that to remove unwanted hair, all that is needed is a good application of ammonia. Youthful grace was emphasized until Powers herself aged when she began talking of the beauty found in gray hair. There is nothing more beautiful than gray hair. There is a surprising amount of of advice that seems comparable to beauty and health columns of today, including eating well, keeping fit and developing mental health, and a sense of self-worth. And at the same time, none of the above were optional lifestyle choices in the eyes of many beauty mavens at the time. The word duty comes up in these columns a lot, which I mentioned before. Today's consumers like to think they are savvier than the Victorians were no better, actually, than they were. Of course, and there have been indeed, uh, there have indeed been some improvements. Ingredient lists are now a legal necessity. It doesn't mean that you can't, like, hide it. (laughs) And contemporary wearers tend to approach makeup as a conscious method of self-expression and creativity rather than as a duty, which is very true. In some senses, though, it's hard to miss the parallels to contemporary beauty tips dispensed by blogs and vlogs and vloggers and bloggers and the potentially risky treatments that wax and wane in popularity and endorsements. So how far have we really come? New weight loss tool prevents mouth from opening more than two millimeters. Cue the heavy sighing and eye roll, and some extra sarcasm. Welcome to a brand new bonus episode. Although I'm super excited because that means we're, we're, we're just one step closer to October, my favorite month. And you know that October, that's when my creative juices flow extra. That sounds weird. <laughs> Here we go. New weight loss tool prevents mouth from opening more than two millimeters. Dental slim diet control, which uses magnets, has been likened to medieval torture device. All right. A weight loss tool that uses magnets to stop people from opening their mouths wide enough to eat solid food has been developed by scientists in order to tackle obesity. Notice the language. The device developed by medical professionals from the University of Otago in New Zealand and scientists from Leeds in the UK can be fitted by dentists and uses magnets 
magnetic components with locking bolts. It has been criticized online, however, with people likening it to a medieval torture device. The University of Otago tweeted that it was a world-first weight loss device to help fight the global obesity epidemic, an intraoral device that restricts a person to a liquid diet. (laughs) All right. I'm not going to. I'll save it for later. Called the Dental Slim Diet Control, the device allows its users to open their mouths only two millimeters wide. Initially, it was trialed on seven otherwise healthy, obese women from Dundane in New Zealand for two weeks, who were given a low-calorie liquid diet. An article published in the British Dental Journal reported that the group of women lost a mean amount of 6.36 kilograms, about 5.1% of their body weight. But participants complained that the device was hard to use, causing discomfort with their speech. They said they felt tense and that life in general was less satisfying. One participant did not follow the rules and instead consumed foods they were not supposed to, such as chocolate, by melting them. Professor Paul Brunton from the University of Otago said the main barrier that stopped weight loss was compliance. He said that the tool helped to establish new habits that could kickstart the process. He said it is a non-invasive, reversible, economical, and attractive alternative to surgical procedures. The Dental Slim Diet Control has received criticism online with people on Twitter saying you don't need this torture device to go on a liquid diet. The University of Otago said, to clarify, the the intention of the device is not intended as a quick or long-term weight loss tool. Rather, it is aimed to assist people who need to undergo surgery and who cannot have the surgery until they have lost weight. The research team behind the product include Dr. Jonathan Bodansky of Leeds and Dr. Richard Hall of RMH Consultancy in Leeds. So in the Newsweek article, um, it's basically similar <clears throat> what it says, but it, it includes some of the tweets that people, you know, um, how they've responded. Um, and so it says on social media, however, many haven't taken too kindly to the suggestion that people should be locking their jaws, jaws shut for a period of time in order to jumpstart weight loss. Some, for example, compare the tool to a medieval torture device, while others are saying that the dystopian and comically evil method is a prime example of fat phobia at work. One um, uh, one tweet said, what year is it? Are we going to recommend tapeworms next? One re- uh, read one sarcastic response. Another one says, they literally want to wire people's mouths shut to avoid gaining weight and people are still questioning if fat phobia exists. Um, here it says in the article, several others said that in addition to being fat phobic, They felt the device didn't adequately address the complex socioeconomic factors present in the so-called obesity epidemic. Very true. We could start by not fat shaming and generally educating people about having a healthy relationship with food. This is one um, tweet. There is no global obesity epidemic. Obesity is an arbitrary designation dependent on the BMI, which is not applicable to most of the global population for many reasons. And we already talked about the BMI, and I'm going to talk about it again. Um, The reality is more people die from hunger than obesity, even in the UK. Where is the funding towards that? 
<laughs> While researchers working on the study claimed their innovations are new, many on social media pointed out that wiring people's jaws shut for weight loss was a common practice in the 1980s that came with serious risks. The University of Otago, well, as we said, they responded to the controversy in a series of follow-up treats, uh, tweets clarifying that the device is not intended as a quick or long-term weight loss tool. Okay, I have questions. <clears throat> Obviously, people who go and get themselves fitted for this device, once they go off a liquid diet, what ha- liquid diet, mind you, what 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 words I'm using here, liquid diet, what happens when they start um, eating regular food? It's like the the tweet the the tweets that said, you know, it's not adequately addressing <clears throat> excuse me the complex socioeconomic factors present. It's very true. It is true that there are more people dying of hunger than there are of people who are dying of apparently obesity uh, obese related like health issues. And I actually have the numbers. As you know, I'm all about statistical data. Now, Oxfam recently um, came out with a report saying that every minute, 11 people die of hunger. All right. 11 people die of hunger. Then it says more than 5.7 million children under five on the brink of starvation across the world. Fair enough. I'm just like, "Mm mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Then, and I took a screenshot of this because I have way too many tabs open on my computer. So you're going to hear some clicky clickies here. Obesity has reached again. This is and this is from the WHO that still uses the BMI to calculate a person's, you know, uh, the amount of fat that they have. Uh, Anyway, anyway, WHO is questionable. In my opinion, obesity has reached epidemic proportions globally with at least 2.8 million people dying each year. Okay, that's each year. That comes up to 233,333 people a month. I don't know how much that is in minutes. I didn't do all the like maths and everything, but I don't think it compares to the 11 people that die of hunger every freaking minute. Here we go. So it's a male it's a male beauty contest, which is like a twist right there um, of the Sahara Desert. So the beauty standards and criteria aren't all that different from your typical beauty pageant, except to the nomadic uh, Wodabe tribe of Niger. It's the girls who get to judge the boys. So there's the twist. Wodabe, Wodabe tribe. So sorry. So the Wodabe tribe are said to value three things in life the most beauty, cattle, and family. They are fiercely loyal people within their clans. They're cattle herders by trade, and uh, they supply meat for hundreds of villages like uh, or village towns from the shores of Lake Chad to the Atlantic coast of Senegal. And they're also said to be obsessively vain. And to tell you the truth, they really have reason to be because these pictures are just... My jaw dropped. Like, there are... Oh, my God, they're just so gorgeous, men and women alike. So known for their beauty, both men and women, the Wadabe tribe, also known as Bororo, prefer a tall and slender physique, long, straight noses, fine features, thin lips, and flawless skin. Uh, So at the end of the rainy season in September, before their annual migration begins, the nomadic clans gather in the desert with their cattle to celebrate, but uh, not only to celebrate, but also to compete. 
It's a week-long festival known as, oh, okay, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, uh, Gerewal or Gerewal. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's G-E-R-E-W-O-L. Uh, so it's a rich cultural ceremony of courtship, which involves clan meetings, camel racing, dancing, singing, marriage bartering, but most importantly, the hunt for the best looking male of the tribe. Their costumes have taken a year in the making. They're, colorf they're colorfully embroidered and decorated with shiny objects and attention-grabbing accessories. Yellow okra and coal is used as makeup to contour the face, elongate the nose, and coat the skin. And a little bit later, I'm going to explain which, what the colors signify to them. So when everything is ready, uh, the pageant can begin and the men ancient warriors by tradition begin parading dancing and singing in the desert sun to impress tribeswomen who also happen to be the contest's judges so the wadabe men roll their eyes back and hiss while showing their teeth to emphasize those highly desired char characteristics of the tribe um, it's also known, however, that to keep their stamina while performing before their female judges for hours and days on end in the Saharan sun, the contestants often drink a very particular cocktail of fermented bark, which is quite the hallucinogenic effect. The ladies are looking for the most beautiful face, the tallest and most graceful, the best dressed, flashing the brightest eyes and the biggest, whitest smile. So lipsticks and, and bead, uh, sorry, lipstick and beads may be associated with femininity in Western eyes, but the ceremonial costumes aim to emphasize the uh, male beauty. So here we delve deeper into um, the symbolism behind the colors, why they use such colors. We have a Danish anthropologist who's worked in, since the 1970s with the Wadabe, um, and her name is Met Boven. So she says in her book, Nomads Who Cultivate Beauty, that red okra, which coats the face, is associated with blood and violence and so only used on special occasions, such as this one. Yellow clay is used by some dancers to paint patterns on the face, and it's the color of magic and transformation. And black to darken lips and emphasize eyes is a favorite hue, partly because it is the opposite of white, the color of loss and death. So adding to the black lipstick significance, it is made from the charred bones of cattle and egret, a, a bird the Wadabe associate with expressivity. So expressivity, says Bovin, is to have charm. That is to have expressivity and charisma, and it's highly valued in a young man. The dance moves emulate the poise of the egret, and the men sing by vibrating lips, painted with a bird, uh, bird lipstick, as Bovin describes it. So Bovin in her book also confronts stereotypes, noting that many often associate the Wadabe men competing in the beauty contests with homosexuals and transvestites. But of course, the Wadabe men are supposed to be putting on this show for the sake of attracting young girls at a festival dedicated to matchmaking and courtship. Perhaps without even knowing it, this tribe whose religion is largely but loosely Islamic in the unlikeliest of surroundings, the Sahara, is challenging gender stereotypes of beauty norms. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to challenge those gender stereotypes. It seems only fitting then that in their native language, Wadabe literally translates to people of taboo. I love that. I think that's beautiful. And I am blown away, seriously. This episode is brought to you by Scrotox. If you're sick of gathering saggy skin and sweat down below, then fret no longer. Scrotox is now a thing.
Scrow talks. What? I'm done. I'm officially done. The article is called, Guys Can Now Get a Scrotox, Botox for Wrinkly Balls. You're all probably thinking right now, where the hell does she find these articles? So this article was written four years ago by Miranda Larby. And I mentioned the title before, Guys Can Now Get a Scrotox, Botox for Wrinkly Balls. You're a guy with a normal set of balls. No, I'm not. But all right. Sure, maybe they can get a little sweaty sometimes, but whose don't? Mine don't because I don't have a set of balls, but okay. And yes, they're getting a bit more wrinkly as time goes on, but that's just something you've got to deal with. I mean, I would assume you would, but okay. Or so you might think. If you're sick of gathering saggy skin and sweat down below, then fret no longer. Scrotox is now a thing. Yes, literally Botox for your scrotum. <laughs> It's the process of inflating slightly wrinkly deflated balls. <laughs> Perhaps it's not surprising seeing that the number of men having cosmetic surgery has doubled over the past decade. And the number paying 2800 for a scrotal uplift are slowly rising with doses of Botox to smooth them out. <sighs> Mark Norfolk. Clinical director of, at Transform tells Metro.co.uk over the past year requests for scrotum Botox have doubled at Transform, showing the huge demand and interest for the procedure. But it's not one that they have offered due to the possible risks and complications associated with treating this part of the body. But why? I hear you scream. Scrotox is supposed to do three things. Decrease sweating. Mark does confirm that injecting Botox into the scrotum may help with any sweating issues. Two, reduce wrinkles. But he explains it won't have much of an effect on wrinkles as there is a lot of loose skin on this part of the body that an injectable treatment just can't shift. So if you want to get rid of uh, your excess skin, you're better off getting a proper nip and tuck. <laughs> Number three, make the scrotum appear larger due to muscles relaxing. What the hell? My money's on this one being the reason anyone would choose to have a scrotox. But it's doubtful the size of your balls affects anyone except you. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, yes, it's true. The size of your balls affects only you, to tell you the truth. But all right. Wreath Plastic Surgery says that many cyclists and runners love getting the Botox in this area to relieve from... Uh, relieve them from skin irritations caused from excess sweating and rubbing. It's just as important as facial rejuvenation. Except it's for your scrotum. <laughs> like, however, Mark stresses that anyone who is contemplating having it done needs to do thorough research into both the practitioner and the product they plan on using. Also, patients should manage their expectations in terms of results. It could prove very costly and nerve-wrecking to go through for very little in return, he says. So, any takers? The next hot trend is getting Botox in your bum hole. You heard that right. Should I repeat it for you? The next hot trend is getting Botox in your bum hole. Ever felt like your bum hole wasn't tight enough? Pretty enough? Lickable enough? In today's round of intense beauty standards, people are now getting Botox as well as loads of other surgeries to make their bums as pretty as humanly possible. Why? Because we simply can't have a butthole that looks, well, like any old butthole. <laughs> I can't! Hold on! <laughs> Jesus Christ. Just like the vagina before it, the anus is now under pressure to look as light, even, and Barbie-like as can be. 
And the only way to achieve this standard is through anal rejuvenation surgery. As Brian Mullen reports for Vice, more and more people who have anal sex are going to a surgeon named Dr. Evan Goldstein, primarily for aesthetic reasons. 90% of his practice is anal rejuvenation type services, and that can include anything from re removing skin tags, anal warts, hemorrhoids, and tightening for people that feel like they've got loose, or loosening for people who think they're too tight, Brian told The Cut. And there are all sorts of other things like fissures, fistulas, and loose skin. Things like that. There are some that treat discoloration or will resurface so it's smoother. I guess as smooth as your puckered butthole can get. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Dr. Goldstein also offers anal Botox, which makes it easier for the butthole to accommodate a larger penis or sex toy. Essentially, the treatments are all about making the bumhole fuckable. By the way, in the article, it wasn't written fuckable. It's like F and then star, 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 star. So I'm assuming it's fuckable. And I know it is for a fact. Fuckable and pretty using techniques previously used for issues such as fecal incontinence to tweak someone's anal appearance. That in itself isn't an issue. The trend only becomes a problem when it becomes, well, a trend. And when butthole-based insecurities become more common. Thankfully, Goldstein is primarily looking to treat the medical issues causing aesthetic issues rather than operating purely to make a butt look better. So, for example, he'll remove hemorrhoids, skin tags, or anal warts, which in turn make the bum look nicer and make it tighter too. But some people are looking to Goldstein purely for rejuvenation, much in the same way that women feel they need to have vaginal lifts or labiaplasty to make their vaginas fit a standard. He told Vice that his private practice started booming five years ago when patients asked for more lickable, playable holes. Since then, rejuvenation forms 90% of his practice. Here's hoping that these surgeries continue to be used to fix genuine issues that cause problems with sex and pooing. We can't deal with the pressure to make another tiny part of ourselves look, in quotes, perfect, especially when it's, it's a part that's primarily used to excrete waste. Should I, should I mention that again? Especially when it's a part that primarily is used to excrete waste. And really, we could all do with remembering that as long as it feels good and it's giving everyone pleasure, it really shouldn't matter how any sexual hole looks. Down with the pressure to have a Barbie butthole. <laughs> Is that